Western Christianity has spent the last 2,000 years telling everyone they're separated from God. This is Not Church with John and Nat Turney. Well, hello, everybody, and welcome back to This Is Not Church podcast. I am one of your two co-hosts. My name is John Turney. Nat, the other co-host, will be with us shortly. He's having some computer difficulties. Hopefully, we'll see him pop in pretty quick, but we want to just go ahead and get the recording going so we can uh, introduce our next guest. Uh, our next guest that we have on the show is none other than Mr. Paul Young. He has graciously accepted our invitation to come back on. For those of you who don't remember, he was on uh, a few weeks ago. Uh, we had him on with Brad Jersak. Uh, they talked about their book they wrote together called The Pastor, A Crisis. Uh, that was a really good episode, and I really highly recommend that you go back and listen to that one. Also, I'm not really going to go into a bio for... Paul Young, because if, again, if you want to hear that, you could go listen to that other podcast. But you know, we just wanted to talk about some of his other books, as I'm sure everybody knows. Uh, Paul Young wrote the book The Shack, but he wrote he's written quite a few other books. Um, another one that we really like, uh, and hopefully we'll be able to talk to him about, is a book that he wrote called Lies We Believe About God. Uh, it just delves into some really good questions about some of the lies that have permeated within religion about God and, and our connection to God. So hopefully we'll be able to chat about that one as well. So without further ado, I would just like to welcome Paul Young to the podcast. Um, so welcome, Paul Young. You know, I got, a, I got a little story about lies. Yeah, I just, because of lies we believe about God, I think it was a week ago, I reached a new height of... Um, what would it be? Anyway, I was called the firstborn of Satan. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I want to I want to just jump right into the to a, a question then because this is something that I've noticed about you in you know in the, our previous conversation with you, and then just other conversations where I've heard you on other podcasts. Like uh, I've said before, I've seen you I've seen you live in person, and one of the things that I've that's just struck me is that how genuinely kind you are to the people who say these things about you and how genuinely loving you are towards them. Um, to say that, to say that I'm there would be a lie <laughs> to say that, uh, uh, I'm trying is the truth. I mean, I'm trying to get to that point where when people call me out and, you know, call me and I mean, Nat and Nat, and I'm sure you can, relate to being, you know, I mean, the simple ones, right? The being called a heretic, an apostate, false teacher, false prophet. But how do you, how, how do you um, come at it with so much kindness and just loving? Well, one, I, I allow myself to grieve about some of those things. And I think that, you know what? I made enough enemies the first half of my life. I, 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 <laughs> yeah. I don't want any more. Also, I really believe I'm dealing with eternal relationships. You know, that's the perspective that I have is that I'm going to be in relationship with this person for the rest of eternity. And, and I want to start the best I know how now. I also see this in Jesus all the time. I don't see Jesus, even in his confrontation with the Pharisees, being anything but kindness inside that confrontation and um, grieving for for the harm and the hurt. You know, everybody brings to the table what they have. 
And, and my people certainly do. And if you can see past that and you don't take the affront personally, because most of the time they don't know who you are anyway. And, uh, and you see a human being, you know, I did this with my dad who I, I really had a conflict situation the majority of my life. And he was an abusive disciplinary. And it took me a lot of years to find out that, you know, his capacity for being a dad had been obliterated by his father before I ever showed up. But, but, in a sense, for a long time, that didn't matter to me. It was, it was more like, why can't you just be my dad? You know? Right. And so, you know, on his 80th, he's 91 now on his 80th birthday, I kind of went for a walk because I had to, I was perturbed, you know, to find a nice baptized word for pissed off. (laughs) And, uh, and so I go for a walk and I really felt Trinity put their arm around my shoulder, Papa God particularly. And go like, Paul, your dad, you know, he hasn't known how to be a dad for 60 years. He's like, not going to suddenly figure it out. And I said, yeah. yeah, I know that. And then I heard, well, if it's okay with you, I'll be all that to you and more. And, and, and it just kind of blasted my heart, you know, and that's the day that I, I released my dad from the expectation that he'd figure it out. And in that, in that releasing, I realized that I was lacing all my conversations with minds. I was, I had created a minefield and then buried all these minds inside that field that my dad couldn't avoid. Right. And every time he stepped on a mind that I set up with my expectations, it validated how I felt. And when I let go of the expectations, suddenly he became a human being. And that changed everything because suddenly I was in a, I was relating to a human being, not somebody who was failing to meet my expectations. And I took him from the law that I had established and being under the law to being free inside the grace that I know. And it, my relationship with my dad in the last 10 years has blossomed. There's still a lot of stuff that we can't talk about. But, um, but he doesn't have to navigate a minefield that he doesn't even know are, are buried there. You know, mine's buried there. And, um, and so people that are, are perturbed and, and angry, um, th- they're doing it for a reason. Um, they're usually afraid. And uh, fear drives all kinds of animosity. And, but they don't want to, you know, they, they want to make it about standing up for truth. or They're going to find a baptized way to justify their fear, right? And when you have dealt with your own kind of crap, you can know. And plus, it's been so long since I've been working, a long time working on my own health that I don't get triggered that easily. I still can. And, and, and to be honest, it took me a couple days to walk through the grief of being called the firstborn of Satan. You know, it's, oh, it's yeah. so audacious that it's kind of ludicrous, but it represents a, a, a theologian who really believes what he is saying. And, um, and I had, you know, Kim, my wife, help me through a little bit of it. Here's what I don't want to do. I don't want to stick him inside a photograph where he's locked in, 
which is yeah. what we often do with our memories of the past. We, we, we take a picture and now they're stuck there. And, and if they're stuck there, we're stuck there. Right. Because we're always in those photographs somewhere. And what I found about Jesus is that Jesus doesn't take us into the past and change the past. He takes us into the photographs and changes our perspective of what's going on. So all of that in terms of dealing with, with these kinds, and it's how the Holy Spirit helps you in any given situation is unique to that situation. Sure. You know? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. It's interesting that, that, so we catch you a day or two, or maybe I don't know how long it's been since that, since that person said what they said, and we catch you after you've processed it. Correct. And you come on this side and, and we say, oh man, you, you're so loving and you're so kind, but I, but we didn't see the process. Correct. You know, um, it, it took it, me a couple a, days. And it's amazing to me that, 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 that happens to me as well, you know, and, and, uh, even, even with people that I just don't know, I can still take it very personally. You know, man, I'm just doing my best out here. I'm just trying to love people and trying to love, trying to love God and, uh, to be attacked in, with that kind of vitriol. It takes yeah. the wind out of yourselves, even if it's a total stranger. And you know? I think with total strangers, you're dealing much more with being triggered into elements of shame that still exist, you know, because it's one thing to quickly deal with the reality that your identity is still secure, right? It's, it's not about being perfect. It's not about them being wrong. It's not about defending yourself. But there are still these vestiges of shame and from a history in which you've lived from the outside in. And I, I remember, you know, I used to play the piano at a high level when I was barely a teenager. I think I was 13 when I was 10th level Royal Conservatory, which is a teaching level. And uh, for two years, I had done this particular music festival and the grand prize was an internship scholarship to a place like Juilliard. And it was a high level musical thing. And, you know, if a hundred people walked by and said, that was brilliant. And one person walked by and said, you know, you made a mistake on page you know, two of this, whatever you played. And both years I came in second. And if I got that kind of response, I was puking my guts out for like a week. And finally, I just quit because the cost of it was too high. But what it was doing was tapping into a lifetime, which was like 12 or 13 years, right? A, a lifetime of playing to the audience, and, and validating my own sense of self-worth from the audience. And that took decades to deal with. And, and really absolute failure became my greatest point of redemption because I couldn't run and try to do it again. I so obviously screwed up and hurt people that I, I couldn't just reformat it and try again. And, um, you know, as, as horrendous as that process was, embedded in it was my salvation. Nat, Nat heard this one first before. We have a private Facebook, Facebook group that goes along with this podcast. And uh, our numbers were growing and we we're getting a, a nice group of people within the Facebook group. And uh, you get to the point where you're patting yourself on the back. You're like, hey, we're doing a great job. Look at how good we're doing. Look at the people who want who, who, who care to hear what we have to say. You know, there's a lot of positive that was going on. And then I happened to check it one day and, and our, our membership or whatever you want to call it. I don't even know the, 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 the amount of people had dropped by one. And I, 
lost my effing mind trying to figure out who I offended and offended so much that they couldn't tell me they left. They just left. And it sent me down this spiral, right? Of just like, I did something wrong. It was my fault. What did I say? How could I have said it better? And maybe it was just, it wasn't the right time for them. Maybe it was... Maybe, maybe they died. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe. <laughs> yeah. Anything, but, man. Maybe they missed it and hit the button by mistake. Yeah. I mean, but isn't it crazy how, how quickly we can just spiral back down into that shame, even though we know and we've been talking to ourselves and, and trying to help ourselves through all of this, that that's not healthy but how quickly we can fall right back into that pattern. A, oh, yeah. a, a false identity will always self-promote and self-protect. Mm. And a false identity exists because of fear, right? So all yeah. external violence originates from internal violence. All internal violence originates from false identity and false identities originate from, from either fear or shame. Yeah, And so it's... It's a very common thing in a world where everybody is so fragile and used to getting their sense of identity from something external. And one of the greatest questions that you can ask Jesus is, who do you say that I am? Yeah. Right? Because then you've got something on the inside. We have a, a grandson who, uh, I don't know, he's 11. And, and he was going through a stage in which he was um, lying to his parents in order to get more screen time, right? And uh, there came this moment in which they were sort of at their wit's end about how, how to resolve this. You know, they'd taken away privileges. They'd done all the, the legalistic things. I don't say that in an accusatory way because I've sure done that. And one day it happened again. And I was, I had, he was visiting us, staying with us, and I had an opportunity to talk to him and the timing was right. And I talked to him about, about this very thing. I said, are you a liar or are you a truth teller? And he said, I'm a liar. And I said, I completely don't agree with you. And I began to talk to him about the fact that he is, what he is on the inside is a truth teller. But he, on the outside, has begun to define himself by his actions, right? So he's getting his sense of, of identity from something outside. And, and we spent like an hour talking about this. And I took him through Bradley Jerzak's little exercise of where he goes and meets with Jesus on the inside. Because Jesus and, the, and Papa God and the Holy Spirit, they live in us. And not just a little apartment in our left toe, Right. <laughs> they actually right. inhabit our emotions <laughs> right. and our imagination and and our heart and our intelligence and our creativity. They live in us. And so in our imagination, where Jesus lives, there is a place that is safe and, and the easiest place on the inside to meet. So I took him through this exercise and he meets with Jesus on the inside. And I said, you need to ask him, who do you say I am? You know, how do you look at me? And he, he closes his eyes and, and I said, did you meet Jesus? And he says, yeah. Did you ask him? He says, yeah. Well, who did Jesus tell you you are? He said, he told me I'm a truth teller. And that began to change everything. And so, you know, when I see him, I'll go, hey, who are you? And he'll say, I'm a truth teller. And so now he's got something on the inside that can combat all this stuff on the outside that tries to tell him who he is. At least he knows one thing about himself. 
He's a truth teller. And that becomes a rock from which he can live. Otherwise, you're at the mercy of people's opinion, at definitions of success, of social media, of your own shame that's telling you, you know, of, uh, but people's opinion is incredibly powerful. And, and for me, I spent most of my life playing to the audience, living from the outside in. So I became something different. And the problem was that I had to lie to maintain, but I had to have a really good memory to keep the, the lies straight so that when I was playing to the audience, I, I got it right to the particular audience. That's exhausting, you know, Absolutely. and not helpful. So at some time, the whole system is going to break down to your benefit, even though exposure is scary as hell. And, um, and, and so, yeah. So again, who do I know that I am from the inside? And that's a tough thing when you're so exposed to all kinds of people's opinions, which is what social media you know, world is largely. It's not about relationship. It's not about dialogue. And so I, I learned to think that, that being right is essential to validation and to, you know, to self-love and all of those kinds of things. And it's like the whole thing's a myth, right? And, and, and that person... It's just a huge house of cards, isn't it? Oh my gosh. And it takes... I mean, the wind of the Holy Spirit is often what blows it down <laughs> to yeah, your benefit. Yeah. But we don't like exposure. No, we don't. We don't. I, something that you said years ago when you, you I don't remember now, um, the years all blend together now, but I, I remember hearing your testimony. Um, I've heard it a few times now, but there might be a lot of people in our audience who have not. Part of your upbringing was as uh, the child of missionaries, right? Correct. And so if you wouldn't mind, maybe just briefly give us what, what does that do to the psyche of a young man who essentially ends up with no home? Correct. There's a, yep. There's a term out there, third culture kids. And, and basically it is you grow up in a culture that is different from your passport. And then you go back to your passport culture and you don't belong there because you've grown up in a, in your first culture. And then you, by the time you get back to your first culture, you don't belong there in, anymore anyway. So one of the real difficulties of third culture kids is that they don't belong anywhere and they feel it all the time. So, you know, I didn't, I, I was a year old when we went into the highlands of New Guinea and, and almost, right around six years old when I was sent to boarding school and uh, missionary boarding school. And I... I didn't know how to identify myself, even though, you know, I have white skin and all that. I, I didn't know how to belong there. I thought, I didn't even know consciously until boarding school that I was white. And, uh, and so it was an absolute shock. And you compile, uh, add to that sexual abuse that happened in the tribe and then sexual abuse that happens in boarding school, which was peer on peer, older versus younger. And now you not only don't belong anywhere, the trade is in your body. That's how you belong somewhere. And just the, the kind of, what do you do? Well, you compartmentalize, you disassociate, you know, you begin to find all the survival skills, which I had developed some of them in terms of my relationship with my dad. I already knew at five years old, it was not safe to tell my parents anything. 
One is that I, I didn't actually belong to them because I was raised by the Donnie as a Donnie, you know, and I, Donnie was my first dreaming language. And, um, and so I didn't have a connection. My dad, I didn't want a connection, but I didn't have a connection with my mom either. And so mine was totally in terms of this group. And that was the basis for a, a life, half a lifetime of, of trying to please the people outside of myself or at least imagine relationships because they were, that's the basis of porn, yeah? By the time we came back to Canada when I was about 10 years old and by 12, I was an absolute addict. Hated myself for it, but didn't know how to connect with anything other than an imagination. And, um, and lying was a survival skill. I, you know, that started with my dad. And because uh, you try to avoid the kind of brutal disciplinarian stuff and, and lying was a survival skill. Or, and repentance was, that is not real repentance because you didn't know what that was, but at least promising that you'd do better if, I, if we got another chance. You know, yeah. but then translated into yeah. my relationship with God, you know, I'll be good. I'll be good. Give me one more chance. I don't want to go to hell. You know? Yeah. So, yeah. you know, that's, that's a terrible way for a child to, to grow up. And I had night terrors that I, I couldn't get my, my head around at all. And that was even before the abuse. So yeah, not, not an easy, but I, there were wonderful benefits to growing up in a multicultural world. Really? Oh, I'm sure. Oh, yeah. Some beautiful things about growing up in the highlands of New Guinea and, and about the tribal culture that I was a part of, you know, as long as you stayed away from the witches, you know, right. <laughs> they scared the hell out of me. That's, uh, that's always good advice, isn't it? Stay away yeah. from the witches, man. Well, at least they were old enough that I could outrun them. <laughs> <laughs> but there was another thing in what you just talked about that I think is interesting is that that shift in in perspective and how we view repentance, that was a big shift for me. Mm -hmm. um, because growing up evangelical, growing up in the kinds of church traditions that John and I grew up in, we didn't even have a Catholic view of the word repentance. We had a softer sort of, you know, Protestant view of repentance, which just, you know, it was just, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'll do better, I'll do better, I'll do better. It didn't come with the same kinds of self-flagellation. And, you know, maybe it would have been better if we'd worked in penance and some other things that we could sort of objectively say, okay, I, I've repented, I've, I've done it. this, I've paid for it, now I... So there was really no, within the Protestant tradition, there's not even any real sense of assurance that you've repented correctly. Oh, um, I know. So, right. so at least I yeah. could have said like 45 Hail Marys and been done with the damn thing and moved on. Right, um, right. So no, you're so culture, my people. That's, that's my people. <laughs> that's right. right there. So like, please, please, please. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. And then when you inevitably don't do better because the promises are empty and they're fueled by shame and they're fueled by stuff that's unsustainable. Um, but when I finally right. did shift, and begin to view repentance as simply a changing of the mind, all of a sudden, man, I repent all the time. You know, I, God sure. help me. I hope I'm growing and learning and, and rejecting some old thoughts and adopting some new ones. And as God reveals himself, as Papa reveals himself and the layers get pulled back and I start to see more clearly, man, that's, it's just a constant evolution. So now I see repentance as an ongoing process of evolution an ongoing process of like a, this trajectory, right? right? But it changed everything because it took it out of the realm of right and wrong, good and bad. It took it out of that legal courtroom setting uh, like we talked about with Doug Campbell, right? Where we talk about justification from a legal standpoint versus a healing standpoint. 
And God is just slowly but surely healing my heart, giving me a better perspective of his image. And, and, and yeah, that, that to me, that changed, it literally changed everything, you know? Yeah. Let me speak to one thing you said. And again, not to be corrective as no, please do as an observation, right? Not as, um, not as a shame based, um, accusation, not as accusation, but observation. You said, I hope that I am growing and getting better. Yeah. That's, that's hope as wishful thinking. Yeah. And we have a hope that is absolutely certain and true that God doesn't build roads going nowhere, that he has begun a good work in me. I'm continuing in that, in that process and journey. So I don't evaluate myself in terms of failure, success, or perfection versus mistake. Right. And I take myself off of that timeline and I go like, I know, I absolutely know because the Holy Spirit dwells in me that, that the, the three, that they are in a process of moving me in the direction of wholeness, right? There's no wishful thinking about this. And so uh, that takes me off of the shame-based evaluation of how I'm doing today versus yesterday. I know that it's moving in a, in a pattern that is more whole and better. And when you can do that, you don't self-annihilate anymore, right. you know? And um, so that's the only, every, everything else, I, I mean, I agree with what you're saying 100% in terms of the process and the evolution. For me, it's not a trajectory. It's a spiral that goes deeper. It's just mm-hmm. a different metaphor. Sure. sure. And so, and here's, here's why I use that, is that in a spiral... And it depends on how tight that spiral is. It's always going deeper into the soul, deeper into an awareness of the presence of Trinity, right? But a lot of times the spiral is so incremental that you think that you're just going in circles because out here you see the same landscape. And it's easy to confuse the fact that the spiral is so tightly wound than to think I'm just going in circles, right? But the reality, I am going deeper. And I can see that in my life now as a 66-year-old that I was absolutely blind to when I was younger. I was so performance-oriented and shame-based, driven that way, that it was just like, I'm failing, I'm failing, I'm failing. I'm just going in circles. Nothing's actually, you know, and it was like running a race in which you get to start every time you repented, felt bad enough, right? Right, right. And, and because you can't believe that you're outside of the love of God. So you're starting maybe a foot inside the beginning of the race, right? You, you get, but you start there every time you fail. So you run at the, at the race as hard as you can and you veer off and, you know, it used to be that you're a mile off before you even recognize that you're off. So you repent, feel bad, get back to the starting line, take another shot at it. You know, in my relationship with my dad, one of my defense mechanisms was lying, which was a safety defense mechanism, you know, trying to find a way to be safer. And the other mechanism was to yell at him, I'll be good, I'll be good, I'll be good, I'll be good. Like trying to promise enough. And I'd scream it at him. But if you think about it, every time you scream something like that, you're actually saying, I'm a piece of shit. I'm a piece of shit. I'm a piece of shit, right? And uh, right. I'll try again. Give me another chance. And our theology said that. Our theology said that oh, yeah. I'm yeah. totally depraved right the whole up, thing. Oh my God, it mashed, matched right up. 
And so not only is my experience telling me that I'm a piece of crap, you know, the abuse and all that kind of stuff, the sexual abuse, um, my trauma is telling me that. Everybody around me is telling me that. My, you know, my dad and then the kids at school and then the teachers and then whatever. But my theology, God, thinks of me that way. And, and we run out of energy. It's like, what am I supposed to do? You know, I am a piece of crap trying to do the best that I can. And, but the piece of crap always wins, right? And so how long do I try to perpetuate? And I'm hoping that I die right before I fail. That's what I'm hoping. I hope that I repent, take a shot at it and get, you know, 25 yards down the race and die before I get off the path, right? And so, so inside my community and people group, there is an absolute death wish. And the only thing that keeps them from dying and killing themselves is this idea that if I do, I'm going to go to hell like Judas, right? So, so, right, exactly. it, so it's a fear-based hope. I'm hoping in death so I can get out of this, but I can't do it myself. So I'm kind of hoping somebody will cro- cross the middle lane and take me out while I've got the good stuff going. I, I totally resonate with what you're saying, but what's, what's weird is I came to a, almost a complete opposite conclusion. So I was so afraid that I was always on the wrong side, that I was always on the verge of landing in hell, that I held on to a piece of scripture that basically says no one knows the time or place of Jesus's second coming. So, and I've written about this before. So what I did on a nightly basis, because I was so afraid that I hadn't done enough to, to redeem my soul, that I proclaimed the second coming of Christ every night as I went to bed. Because if I knew he was coming, he can't come. Ah. If I knew that I gave him the power to come today, (laughs) he he can't do it. Right. So I, I lived in this reality of I'm holding Jesus hostage from coming back. Wow. So I don't have to, so I don't have to ever worry about where I'm going. And that gave me permission to mess up and be the piece of shit that I was. You know, I still played the game. I still hid it from my parents. I still hid it from the church. I still played their game. But in my own little reality, I was holding Jesus hostage so I could live the life wow. that I found out that I was, which was a piece of shit. Yeah, that's, that, that's, that's fascinating. Yeah. But what that's, if you died? That, yeah, but what if you died? Then you're boned. Yeah. yeah I, that's a very you know, short view, John. I didn't, say it was, I didn't say it was working <laughs> well, for me. So here's, what, here's what's interesting. because So John and I, you know, we're, we're a little over a year apart in age. We're not, we're, we're pretty close in age. Uh-huh. Um, always a year, always a year apart in school, raised in the same house, shared a bedroom most of our lives. Um, yep. even when we could split bedrooms, we ended up moving back in together because we liked each other. All right. And there was always like, than being a room alone. to play in. And yeah, we, we, yeah. you know, we genuinely liked each other, but we had very different experiences in the same house. And what was built into our, Family, I guess. Maybe it's a family dynamic, John. I'm not sure what it is. We, there was, we didn't talk about it. And so we, you and I never talked about it. I went to bed with Paul's experience every night, listing every conceivable affront or offense because dear God, if I died with one unrepented sin, 
I was going straight to hell. And so, and I lived like you did. I, I was in fear. I hoped to God I would die after that. Right. Death was like, our Dear hope. God, just take me, you know. Yeah, it was a hope. It was like, get me out of this mess because there's no way I can keep up this charade much longer. It never survived more than five or 10 minutes with one of my friends. I'd drop an F-bomb or do something dumb and, you know, commit one of those mortal sins. You know, I, I'm not sure my mom and dad ever listen to this. I hope they don't hear this as criticism of the way they raised us. They did the best they could and they, you know, worked with the information that they had. And um, and a lot of it wasn't them. It was the churches that we attended, um, Sunday school teachers. And, you know, so those little cliched things that we say to each other, like, you know, you got to keep a short account with God, you know. And I would, I would sometimes forget to pray for a, you know, a week or two. I'm like, oh shit, how am I going to remember all the messed up stuff I did? I had some pretty impure thoughts the last 10 days or so. And, you know, so. Not alone the last me, 10 minutes. I don't know if, if this <laughs> yeah, ever happened to yeah. you guys. Yeah. 10 minutes. I just had one just saying the word impure thoughts. Son of a. Yeah, anyway. <laughs> um, but there was a point in my early teens where that whole process became so convoluted and so unsustainable and so just downright exhausting. I said, you know what, to hell with it. And I did, I kind of did what John did. I played the game. I stayed in church. I didn't want to offend anybody. I, I sure didn't want the confrontation of, of, of being a bad guy, but I learned how to perform and I learned how to play the game and I learned how to put on different masks for different people. And that, that, that created a half a lifetime for me as well of learning how to perform. You know, just learning how to, how to blend into different circumstances. So, even during those years, were there not transcendent experiences? That is where there was moments of light that broke through. You know, whether yeah, it was hundred percent, yeah, reading a book or taking a walk or being caught in a rainstorm or bits of movies or you know somebody's kindness or something that split the darkness for a moment that was enough to keep us alive. More than I can count. Yeah, More me than too. I can count. Yeah, me too. So it's easy to focus back on, on the negatives. And, um, but no, there were transcendent moments all the time. All I got to do is flip through photo albums and, and John and I are transported like, oh yeah, we, we did not have an idyllic childhood, but there were idyllic moments. Yeah, and, how about music? Far too many to count. Music oh, yeah. was transcendent. Yeah. You know, we had... Yeah. And the people, I mean, you know, not everyone we encountered was a piece of crap out to get us. You know, there were a lot of remarkable human beings along the way. It, yeah. That, that's a good perspective. There were many, many, many of those. And those are the, I think those are the things that, like you said, that, that, that keep you moving, you know, yeah. keep you on a, yeah. Keep you, know, you alive. Yeah. Keep you alive. And, and yeah. we can see them. We can see them better now because we never were present. We just experienced them and then fear pushed us out of the presence. And, uh, you know, so, but I can see, I'm, I was a rock and roll disc jockey for a few years. And I'm telling you, there were, there were time periods of music that were absolutely penetrating and lyrics of songs that were penetrating. Yeah. And, um, lyrics have always been something, you know, whether it was a Leonard Cohen song or Bruce Coburn or, a, or a James Taylor or, you know, even a BJ Tom Thomas song, you know, it just de depended on where I was at and, um, and what spoke to me. And there were many musicians that were artists trying to write the human heart. And I connected to those as, as lost as I was. I, I didn't connect to the hymns very well, but, uh, but I connected to quote unquote secular music. 
and still do. And, um, but that was a lifeline for me, um, was, was that. And, uh, and then there were people, like you said, along the way. And I can remember s- many of them. And, and frankly, most of them were women. Um, and partly I think because my damage had come primarily from males. And, um, so there, you know, but I had, a two, two things flashed to mind. I had a college roommate who was a, a year or two actually more than that ahead of me. But he decided, he decided one time that God had told him, and I think he's right, that God had said, okay, you're going to play this game. I want you to, to log every sin you've ever committed and make it right. And he did this, he did this for a few months and was suicidal. Absolutely. Because every time he found one, it, it had, it had five other ones connected to it. And, and so he, he created this monstrous tree of guilt and shame that there's no way he could compensate for. The other thought that comes to mind was the, um, the college president's wife who was, they were missionaries in the Philippines and, and she had a heart and she would slip me a note or a book or something that was outside the tradition, right? Outside the, that particular denomination's viewpoint. And these things were, life-giving, you know, in, in little bits and pieces. And um, so again, um, again, you, uh, Eunice Smith, who was my Greek teacher with a Spanish accent because she was a missionary in South America. And, um, yeah. but she again was somebody who would drop a little comfort, a little encouragement just at the right times. So, you know, I'm so grateful for the fact that God is not trapped in the box that we put him in. And, um, yeah. And sure. so, you know, there is lots to be grateful for inside the convolution of the damage that existed in our lives. Yeah. That's a good way to put that in. I love it. it. It's interesting that a lot of times what we, what, what helps us connect to God or the divine or spirit or whatever you want to call it is something that the church would call secular <laughs> or outside the church. Mm-hmm. And, uh, it was one of those, you know, I left the church at a fairly young age, you know, in comparison. And so, uh, and so I spent a lot of time in the secular world in, in air quotes outside of a faith, but so many places I felt the voice of God or heard the voice of God or felt the presence of God within these quote unquote secular things, music, writings, poetry, poetry, so much that, um, you couldn't, you couldn't let go of, of uh, an idea that there was a God, or at least I couldn't. Yeah. Even though I tried really, really hard Me too. to say there, you know, that there was no God. It was just an easier place to live because I didn't have, I wasn't beholden to anybody. I wasn't, I didn't have to worry about someone keeping track of what I was doing. So it was just an easier place in my mind to just say, yeah, God, God isn't real. None of this is real. Yeah. But then to do that, you have to ignore the beauty. In not only your own faith, but other faiths, because you see it, right? Well, and, you have to ignore uh, beauty itself. In fact, before, yeah, well, yeah. before you said that, the word beauty popped into my mind. And it's just like, yeah. if everything's meaningless, so is beauty. So right. is any concept yeah. of love or goodness yeah. Yeah. or kindness. And why am I so a- attracted to those things and opposed to things right. that harm people? You know, and it's 
why do when I go down to the deepest longings, it's not to be a person who lies. It's not to be deceitful, right? It's not to be harmful. The deepest places of my being are contrary to that. And, and so, yeah, I, yeah, I did the same thing. I suspended my sense of God and looked at other things, you know, walking the line of atheism. And, but there were things that I still believed in, you know, and people that I believed in or something that was deeper than all this chaos of meaninglessness and aloneness. Yeah. 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 That's one of the things that kept me from sliding full scale into nihilism is because I just, if everything is meaningless and then these other experiences, I I don't have explanations for, don't make any sense anymore. Um, So I can't, I can't slide full scale into that. But um, you mentioned music and I thought we might have a little fun with, uh, because it's really interesting. You, the the three artists that you mentioned are both favorites of John and mine. So you said yep. Dylan, you said Coburn, I, who was I, who was the third? B.J. Thomas does not make the list. No, um, no. But, uh, <laughs> James Taylor. Oh, James, James Taylor absolutely makes the list. And as absolutely. soon as you, anytime someone brings up Bruce Coburn, one of my favorite lines from a song is from um, uh, Lovers at a Dangerous Time. Yeah. There's a line that he says, you got to kick at the darkness till it bleeds daylight. Yeah. How about and pacing like, the cage? Pacing the cage. Yeah. Oh, am I? See, Coburn, I'm a burnhead all the way. Yeah, and, yeah me too. Um, if, I, if I listed the top musicians, he'd be number one. You know, Dylan and Cohen. Cohen was also oh, on Leonard that Cohen. list. Yeah, you mentioned Leonard Cohen. Yeah, yeah for sure. He, he appealed to the dark side of my, <laughs> my life yeah, in ways yeah. that hardly anybody else did. But Coburn, every album had two or three songs on it that just absolutely messed with me. Yeah. And, uh, Pacing the Cage was just such an incredible song yeah. um, at certain at certain times, and still is. I still, I can't listen to that song without tearing up, you know. Yeah, me too. I, I, had, the, I had the privilege of seeing him live a few years ago. And uh, so I bought two tickets. He was, he was playing here locally. And uh, I, I just bought two. I didn't know who was going with me, but I bought two tickets. Yeah. And I told my wife, I was like, hey, I'm going to go see Bruce Coburn. You want to go? And she's like, nah, not really. I'm like, okay. And so I actually, I just put it out there to some friends. I was like, who wants to go to see Bruce Coburn with me? And nobody wanted to go. So I wrangled in my youngest son. At the time, I think he was maybe, he might have been 13, wow. 12 or 13. Wow. Maybe even younger. I'm not sure exactly. I'm, I'm trying to remember how long ago it was that we went. And uh, so I put Bruce, Bruce Coburn on in the car as we were driving from our house to the venue, which is about 45 minutes. So about 45 minutes of him listening to an artist he'd never heard before. He played every single song that night wow. that I played in the car. Wow. <laughs> I mean, obviously, obviously plus. So my son got the joy of saying, I know that song. I, I, I've heard that song. Yeah. And I looked around, you know, this full stadium or this full auditorium of, of people. And I looked around, I was like, you are the youngest person here. You are. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you're, you're, you're getting a moment that I, at your age, I didn't get. I didn't get to see someone like this at, at that age. And it was a remarkable night. And man, at, at his age, still just, I mean, he came out and just rocked it. I mean, there were some songs. I'm like, I did not know he played like this. Oh, this is crazy. He's one of the best guitarists was, in the world. Yeah. And, yeah. Yeah. So um, I quoted him in the shack and not realizing that I was violating all kinds of <laughs> intellectual <laughs> property rights. And, and later Coburn uh, at a particular concert that he did, he says, you know, there's this guy who wrote this book called The Shack, who is 
violating all kinds of my intellectual property rights. And, uh, but he did it and laughed about it. And I, and I had to connect with him. And then he was asked to do his memoir because of the notoriety he got from the shack. Wow. So there's a wow. direct connection. And so when he was in Portland one time, he, he contacted me and said, do you want to come spend a couple hours? And, uh, and I did. So, um, wow. so yeah, so that's, that's one of those things that you never could anticipate. But right, uh, but he right. wrote his memoirs because of the sh- because of the shack. He, they called him up and and they and uh, what did they call it? Didn't call it a memoir. They called it something else. And and he said to the publisher who asked him to do it, he said, "I have no idea what this even is." And they said, "Well, we don't either, but we think you're the right person to do it." So he, he, it's, <laughs> it's not actually a memoir. It's more of a story of of parts of his life. And um, so that was pretty cool. All right. Well, now we need to read the book and get him on the podcast. Come on, Bruce. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. Well, you know, <laughs> he's part of a really wonderful faith community in San Francisco, and, um, and you can go on the web. He did a. Oh, okay. He did a. They were they were going through the parables of Jesus, and he actually did one of them from Matthew twenty five, and so he's he's the teacher that day. Wow. Um, yeah. So you know his. His depth and relationship with Jesus is very authentic, but he's never allowed it to co-opt his art. And so, you know, he's a real artist. He's not somebody who turned the art into propaganda, which is what our people love to do because they don't know any better. Right. It's ab- it's one of the things I felt at that concert was uh, I could tell there's a faith, you know, and I already kind of knew that, that, that he had, that there was some faith based, you know, some some form of faith within his writing. Yeah. But uh, much like you too, it's not, it's, it's not, not in your face. Right. And it's, it's just, it's kind of intertwined into the music, Correct. intertwined into the it lyrics. It doesn't have and, an agenda. Right. Yeah. There, yeah. It's, that's exactly right. right. I, I had a, speaking of you too, so I had this experience once with, um, I went to, I went to church camp, right? <laughs> and, uh, so we were in church those. camp. It was three or four hours away, five hours away. Um, I looked forward to it. We always had a lot of fun. We got in a lot of trouble. Smoked a lot of dope. It was great. Um, <laughs> just, don't, just don't go to a Pentecostal one. Those are too scary. No, it was Pentecostal too, man. Well, that's the only way I could survive it was to be it was to be a little bit, just be a little high, <laughs> and uh, everything will be all right. But I so I'd gotten about thirty miles down the road and realized I had packed my. Now this will age me, but uh, I packed my Walkman and nothing to listen to. Oh, wow. And so we stop in this little town called Fortuna, which is what, 25 miles down the road, John? I mean, we're on yeah, our way to that. Sonoma, for goodness sake. It's a six-hour drive or however how long it mm-hmm. is. And, um, I managed to convince the guy that I really, really have to pee. I really, really, I just, I need to pee really bad. And so they pull the bus over and they pull in this little shopping center. And I, and I go straight to the little tiny music section of this little tiny record store or this, this department store, place where we used to go get ice cream, the thrifty, John. Yep. So we're at the thrifty and I'm like, I'm going to get a double scoop ice cream and I'm going to pee and I'm going to grab something. And I, the only cassette that struck me at all was you two had just dropped the Joshua tree. Wow. And so I grabbed the Joshua tree cassette was the only cassette I had for two weeks at church camp and I wore it out. And I it was this did. surreal, very, there's nothing quite like the middle of the night when it's dark outside and you're sitting in your little bunk at church camp. And all I have is to just keep flipping the tape over and going with or without you, Red Hill Mining Town. I mean, I know, I know that album so well. I can sing the next song in the right key before it even starts. I know wow. if, if the, if, if Bullet the Blue Sky ends, I know what comes next. 
but it, it, it taught me something about music and it taught me something about the transcendent quality and potential of music to go outside of norms and genres or whatever and still speak to the human heart. And that's, uh, you know, that's something that Cohen does. It's something that, you know, Cohen gets to that, you know, hits some of that darker stuff, but he still manages to bring beauty and light to it somehow, which he was a gift. But Coburn was, Coburn was a guy that John and I, a friend of ours that we played music with, introduced him to me. Yeah. And he was like, you got to hear this guy. And I'm like, ah, come on. He was this guy that played music with us. who was at least what, 15 years older than us, John? Yeah, probably that was 16. That. Yeah. He was probably 31 or 32. And he decided to be the lead singer in our band. And we're like, he wants to play music with a bunch of 16 year olds. Um, but he starts introducing <laughs> Tom Petty and, yeah. you know, Bruce Coburn and, uh, some, you know, people like Dylan, that. Jackson, Jackson Brown. Dylan, Jackson Brown. Jackson Brown. Yeah. yeah. I mean, so yeah, we're Neil Young. That was where I really, really, oh. really decided to love Neil Young. I love Neil um, Young too. Man, Neil's just a bomb. But, but Dylan, so speaking of being co-opted, what do you, I know you mentioned Dylan. Dylan always struck me as interesting because they, he refused to be co-opted by anyone. Yeah. And even when he converted, I mean, they got three albums out of him, but then he was done. Like, you know, they were good albums. And they were good albums. The first one was the best of the three. But, I agree. But, but but if, but if he wouldn't be co-opted by the peace movement or the hippie, he, every time he seemed like they tried to pigeonhole him into something, he's like, nah, I'm not that. I'm going to be this instead. And so, but yeah, I don't, I don't know if you have a, a favorite Dylan song or, I don't, I don't think I have I love You Gotta one. Serve Somebody, which you is, yeah. Serve somebody. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. Good stuff, I man. love that. There is so many good Dylan songs. You know, yeah. uh, if you link to Brian Zahn, he's got a playlist of his top 50 Dylan songs and they're just killer. So, yeah. Yeah. One yeah. of the ways that I connected with Zahn early on was through music. I'm like, okay, this is a guy I can, I can hang with because... Yeah. Um, when we when he goes through his list and um this, that sermon series he does every year, finding God yeah. in your iPod, which I think he's changed now because nobody has iPods anymore. But um, we're actually going to hopefully talk with him. He's supposed to be emailing me this week. We're supposed to get oh, him on, good. The, on the podcast. Yeah, so he's he's one a, of, he is a great human being. Yeah, he's one of those guys that you know, along with you and guys like Brendan Manning and Brad, and who who are instrumental in that deconstructive process of like, hey, let's get you out of dead religion. Let's get you into something more authentic and genuine. Brian was that guy that, um, for me, first got the the issue of violence on my radar, mm. and and the fact that so a farewell to Mars was was this watershed mm. book for me that brought into focus things I hadn't even thought about. How does violence creep into your theology? Well, because you start with a violent God, exactly. why wouldn't it then? So a violent atonement makes a lot of sense because sometimes God does violence, and sometimes there's you know sacredness in His violence and. Yeah. So then it, it justifies my own violent thoughts or deeds. So yeah, it's so yeah. I put him in that, you know, in that in that place where, you know, where I put you as well, where you were the shack in in certain well, ways. Just I'm honored to be in anywhere near Zon or Brennan Manning. <laughs> Brennan was the guy that broke me. You know. Oh. Have you seen Spiritual Evolution by John McMurray or no. Across? Okay. A, a, okay. Spiritual evolution, which is the journey of someone who's from our people, very gentle, very honest, very authentic. And then uh, Baxter Kruger's Across All Worlds. Yeah, I love Baxter, man. Which, oh, me too. And um, if you're going to read one thing, which is a very small book of Baxter Kruger's, read Across All Worlds, which is a very okay. significant book. And then... You know, Bradley's got a bunch, but his most recent one that he's getting a little vilified for by our people is a more Christ-like word. 
You know, it's the third of his trilogy. Yeah, it's right. literally right here oh, on my on my desk. So important book, just so significant. I saw because, him. Uh, I saw him taking some hits over that one. Yeah, you know, in our camp, we have a lot of literalists, and they're the ones that are going to have the most trouble with it because they think that somebody who who doesn't believe in the inerrancy and infallibility of the Bible, that they're not literalists. And so, you know, right. it's like, well, you don't actually believe that the Bible is literally true. <laughs> and it's like, no, right. it's true, but it's not inerrant and infallible. That's never been right. a claim of scripture itself. You know, right. so we did that so that we could then come up with our own doctrines and justify it because we literally take the Bible, not as truth. We take it as yeah. literal. And um, right. so, you know, and I grew up in that world, so I totally get it. But um, this book is hard to argue against. You know, I, I love his statement. I do believe in the infallible inerrant word of God. And at 18, he grew a beard. Yeah, right. yeah, which, yeah. Which, which I think <laughs> yeah, is fantastic. Right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, the first time I heard him say that, I was like, "Oh, I'm writing that down. That's that's really good." Yeah. Um, so yeah, this whole inerrancy and that, well, I was telling somebody I I I, I used this line um, on on these youth retreats I used to do, and it mm. gets me in trouble, but you know whatever. And so we had these. We always have these little Q and A sessions. I was always like a clergy on this. We, it's a thing called the chrysalis. If you've ever heard of a walk to Emmaus, it's this is the, yep. the teen version of a walk to Emmaus. And so I worked a ton of these things. And so we have this little Q&A session and inevitably the question will come up, what do I think of scripture? Is it infallible? Is it inerrant? These kids are pretty astute at 14 or 15. They're asking these questions. And sure. what I would like to tell them all the time is I said, well, what the Bible says about scripture is that it's God breathed. Guess what? So are you. Yep. Are you perfect or infallible? No, yeah. but you are God breathed. Yeah. So guess what? Scripture can be useful. It can be helpful. It can have a purpose. But God breathed is fantastic. I'll take that term any day of the week and twice on Sunday. I think Scripture is absolutely God breathed. Absolutely. Uh, well, the, when you when you take that perspective, then other things then can be that for you too, right? Sure. Like we're talking about music, right? Uh, the lyrics in a song can be just as God breathed. Oh yeah, as that Bible on your shelf. Yep. Yeah. Probably you very rarely take down anyway. <laughs> Unless or, I want to know, pull up or, text out to smack somebody with it. <laughs> or or that, you know, that or that conversation you had with that person who you just met and for whatever reason you just connect, right? Yeah. And you're just having this conversation and at the end of it you're like, Wow, I don't know what happened there, but that was like one of the most most remarkable conversations that I've ever had. Sure. Sure. And it's just allow it allows you to see divinity or the divine in things that you know, if you are so stuck to the infallibility and inerrancy of the Bible, and that's the only place that these things can come from, it allows you to see those in other people and in other things and in, and in beauty and in nature and in sure. all that, right? I mean, one, you know, some of my, you know, being outside of the faith or whatever you want to call it for so long, a lot of what I was reading was, like I said, I was searching for that missing part of me, right? The, the God hole. Yeah. Um, and so I found it in Buddhism. Mm. For me, you know, Thich Nhat Hanh is probably and will always be one of the most important people in my life. Sure. I heard more of God and the divine from his writing than I had in so many other things. Uh, the Dalai Lama, I mean, just the beauty 
of the way he sees humanity. Sure. And from a horrific place that he was, that he started. Sure. I mean, how can you not see the, the, the divine in that? Right. Uh, I'm going to, I'm going to out my wife a little bit here for a second. So if she's listening, when she listens to this, she'll, she, she can get mad at me. But, uh, one of the people who has taught me more about the ability to love unconditionally, to care for humanity outside of agenda, to give up oneself for others is her. Yep. My wife too. And my wife and my wife is an atheist. Mm. No, she's not. She's made in the image and likeness of God. She's indwelt by the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, whether she knows it or not, you know, because that love originates somewhere. She and I were sitting watching uh, Ricky Gervais one night, and he just, I mean, he just kills me. I mean, he's so funny. And I looked at my, I think my son was there too, and I go, he's my second favorite atheist. (laughs) And he's like, who's your first? I said, your mom. (laughs) He's like, he's like, Oh, uh, oh yeah, well, that makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> I tell but, you, Kim saved my life. My Kim. Yeah. 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 My, my, mine is not a Kim. Mine is a Greta. Nice. But, uh, um, yes. In more ways than she will probably ever know, she has saved my life. Uh, she has given me purpose, meaning she's accepted me in all of my horrendous faults. And there are days where I'm like, why, why are you still with me? I don't, I don't, I don't know what courage and power you have that allows you to see through the stupid stuff I do and say there's still, there's still a reason to, to hold on to this guy. Yeah, he matters. And, uh, yeah. That's beautiful. But, uh, yeah. Uh, I, on the other hand, have blessed my wife with my presence <laughs> and have given her a reason to believe in unconditional love. Yeah. Right. Well, we pray, we pray, we pray that one day the Holy Spirit will open your eyes to things that are actually true. <laughs> Sorry, I just had, I had to break it down. I was getting too damn serious. <laughs> like, yes, it was. Oh, it was. My, gosh. Man, it was. my wife is lucky to have me. God bless her. <laughs> and now, hey, actually what this is, is a test. I'll see if she ever listens to a whole episode. Oh, <laughs> I am hilarious. Three billion or so. That's, that's pretty scary. Yeah, really. But as always, I could talk to you forever, dude. Um, I appreciate you coming on. I appreciate you sharing your heart with us. Um, you guys know, you guys know Paul, you know where to find his stuff. We'll link to everything in the show notes. Man, go, go, just go check out some stuff. And the people that he's mentioned also, uh, take a listen and, and, and take a look. Um, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna say goodbye and thank you once again for being so generous with your time. Always, Love always being a pleasure with you guys. and an honor, my yeah. friend. Thank you, sir. Yeah, me too. Two way street. Thank you for listening to This Is Not Church. Be sure to rate and review the podcast on your platform of choice. If you would like to partner with us, visit patreon.com slash thisisnotchurch, where you will receive exclusive content such as early access to episodes, videos of upcoming episodes, and live Q&A sessions. Be sure to check out our Facebook group or follow us on Twitter and Instagram. All the links are in the show notes. We'll be back soon with another episode.